Hey, it's Chris Edgerly, a.k.a. The Edge Voice, and you're about to listen to an audio version of an interview I've done on my streamcast on Twitch. Now, if you'd like to see the video along with it, you can find it in the links below, or you can just go to my YouTube channel, Chris Edgerly, a.k.a. The Edge Voice. Hope you enjoy it. So, hey, that's Alexa Kim right there, and uh, let's see, what is your title? Game designer? Lead game designer? I'm a senior senior game designer. Senior I think that's my title. Designer. Okay, senior game designer. How long did it take you to get to senior game designer? Because the one thing I've learned over the years working on video games is there is a staggering number of people that has to work on even the most um, modest game to get it to happen. And, and uh, Medal of Honor was not a modest game <laughs> at all. <laughs> at all in any sense let's see so were you asking how many years in my career or just i don't know just a sense of um i don't know years what portion of the time you've spent in this industry has it taken i mean whatever whatever the sense of the road that you've taken to get here is share it if you would all right um i've been making video games for about 10 years now okay uh, professionally, I would say about six because I started out making video games that were more for, uh, like study or, um, mm -hmm. you know, video games for social awareness, mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, and, uh, at Respawn, I've been working for just under three years and all of that was on uh, Medal of Honor. Yeah. That's, and this is a project that just released. So yes. about about a week ago, roughly, it came out. And this was three years of your involvement on it. But from talking to Peter Hirschman, the director of the game, and who also wrote it, it was a lot longer for him as well, I believe. I mean, the ideas of it, uh, I think going, I'm not even sure how far back. I'll have to get him on here and ask him. But... Were there many people on the game before you in some creative capacity before you came on and started your work? No. <laughs> right at the beginning? Um, so we have two design teams, mm. uh, system design and what we call mission design, which would be people who make the uh, environment uh, script out gameplay and combat. And uh -huh. I'm a mission designer. Okay. Uh, when I joined there it was just the three of us, the lead mission designer and myself and one other. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and it was... The, what? No, go on. It was just um, the whole team was, I don't know, maybe 15 people at most. I remember going into the interview and they said I was going to meet the entire team. And I, I was like, whoa, that's going to be intimidating. But no, it was just a closet full of nerds. and. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, empires have been built by closets full of nerds, as we know. So True. you never it. And it's funny because a uh, nerd culture, uh, Patton Oswalt, I've mentioned this before. He wrote a great essay about this maybe more than 10 years ago, that geek culture has been mainstream for a long time. I don't even know what geek culture is anymore, because everything that I grew up knowing to be nerdy and geeky, which was me in a nutshell, just got mainstream dungeons and dragons is mainstream uh, all these uh pastimes we had comics all that became mainstream 
And so, um, I mean, the nerds won, I would say. <laughs> maybe maybe we were losing in high school, but eventually the nerds won. Or, or maybe we weren't losing at all. That's true. Yeah. The, the metrics change as you get older. The things that I was embarrassed about when I was younger, I take some pride in now. And, um, and vice versa. The things that you thought were cool back then, you realize, eee. I mean, honestly, who isn't embarrassed about high school? Yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed by half of what I did last week. So going back uh, that far, I, I can't even imagine. So, <laughs> yeah. Now, when you say that you met the, the team and it was only about 15 people, that was certainly not the number of people that you ended the project with. As far as Medal of Honor goes now, how many people do you think were on the entire team when the game was really cranking? Um, I'm not sure. The core team, I guess, at Respawn mm -hmm. would be about 40. We're still very small. Okay. But the thing is, we uh, worked with a lot of outside uh, teams Yeah. on big features like art and multiplayer okay. and uh that will bring us up to like several hundreds for sure really uh yes about i would guess 300 for just dev really wow i think so okay so when you're coming in and it's such a small team uh, of 15 people at the very beginning what kind of raw materials are you given to work with? I mean, you've got to build from, you know, almost nothing, I would think. Um, well, Peter had most of the main beats already laid out for us. He uh -huh. knew what, like, what kind of characters you'd interact with and right. where you would be. Right. And sort of in, in a loose sense, uh, oh, this is going to be this kind of size of combat or, you know, it's going to be intimate and sneaky. Right. But that was it. Yeah. So the week I started, I just started making levels. And I think in the first month, I um, made a geo, that's the environment, okay. for two, two levels and then did gameplay for two. <laughs> and it was like that, just, you know, hitting the ground running wow. uh, for four levels every month. Wow. I believe. Okay. So I, I have a hard time even processing this because I have to make sure that I even understand the concept of it because, so take my frame of reference for this. Um, I'm an actor in the game and I'm given a script to interpret with the help of the director and the other actors. And so I'm creating in my head as much of the world as I can. And that's a skill I've built since I was a kid. And when you're a kid and you're playing pretend, you're designing your world of pretend. And sometimes maybe if you're artistically inclined, you'll draw a picture of it or you'll write a comic of it. And that's what I used to do. I used to draw pictures and write comics and things. So I was designing this world of mine. But if you're a game designer for something that has to go to market and be playable, I, can you encapsulate what it is that you have to, that you have to actually do nuts and bolts wise? In 10 <laughs> seconds, go. I, oh God! No, <laughs> you I know, mean, um, give me your sense of how you would describe it to somebody who just asked you. What, what What do you do? Like, you know, nuts and bolts of what do you do? It's It's like when you're trying to explain what you do for a living to your parents. You know, my yeah, mother asked yeah. me, "So, do you do art?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> yeah. Do you do programming? A little bit, but not. 
are you an idea person? No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's it's all of the above, really. But right. I guess my process was, you know, so going back, Peter yeah. would give me the bullet points, and then I would take that, and uh, we uh, created what's called a top-down, which is kind of an area of aerial sketch of uh -huh. what your level is going to be okay. with um, where the player is going to be at any given moment right. with the with the core uh, one-line uh, game beat. Uh -huh. Like, what you're going to do? Are you going to fight guys here? If so, how many? Are you going to interact with NPCs here? Mm -hmm. You know, those things. And then once that got, you know, approved and, and talked over, I just start building the environment first, you know, uh, go into engine, make rooms or make mountains. Uh, yeah, all, all that jazz for a week it was because remember, we only had a month. Right. Um, and then the next week would be uh, placing the bare bones combat, gotcha. scatter, scattering some AI, see how it feels. And from that point on, it's really uh, rinse and repeat, kind of like going back, okay, this wasn't good for the right. environment. I need more uh, cover. I need more uh, higher mountains here and right. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so. So are you taking um, uh, like computer 3D art programs and building um, within the program? Or are you taking hand-drawn sketches, feeding them into an algorithm that can turn them into? Oh, I wish. World? Yeah. I wish. Yeah, you tell me if there's any technology like that where mm. I can just give a computer a sketch and it'll make me a level. <laughs> this is like the scene in Star Trek Four, which uh, one of my favorite science fiction movies ever. They go back in time and Scotty is at the computer and he's trying to tell the computer what to do because he's working on, I guess, 23rd century technology. And he picks up the mouse and he starts talking into it. Computer, because he, he wants it to do something. And meanwhile, the guy who has to live in 1986 is looking at him like, um, they don't do that? So here I am. Computer, I have an idea of a tree. Make me the tree, please. So that's, yeah, I have no awareness of how you take your idea of, okay, so Peter says we're going to be in a field in the middle of France, and it's sort of this season, and it's going to have this kind of foliage and all that. You've got to take that, and you've got to create it within a computer program, correct? Yes. Okay. So that would usually involve a game engine. Okay. Um, and in our case, that was Unreal Engine 4. And uh, Unreal Engine 4 has, uh, you know, a handful of tools that you could use to create these environments in 3D. Right. And okay. uh, what you call them, you know, there's many names, but we usually call them a blockout block mesh, mm. uh, gray boxing. Right. It's, it just means a, a simplified version of the map that gives you dimensions and the feel uh -huh. for the environment, but not like actual art, not, not actual trees or not actual uh, like bricked houses, just the bare bones of the dimensions of the house. Gotcha. So this gives you at least a world, uh, a topographical world that a that a an entity or a body can move through in space. Yes, like you can start getting coordinates and things like that. Yep. So yeah, you can kind of get a sense of like, oh, this space is about the size I want. This will work with the gameplay. Gotcha. Um, and that also gives the artist an idea of, and when you 
give it to them. You do a back and forth. Hey, like I want this to be a forest. Right. You'd uh, point to an empty room and go, well, this is going to be a bathroom. So do bathroom things. Gotcha. And they come back with something really great. <laughs> Not that many bathroom things. Well, I mean, I am it's... the person that made two bathrooms in the game, so. Oh, you did? See, yes, I, I, was, I was very proud. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what you have to tell your mom next. What do you do? I made bathrooms today, mom. Yep. What? <laughs> Let me explain. <laughs> I knew you needed to learn a real trade. <laughs> <laughs> My brother is a, my brother's a graphic designer. He's an artist and he's always oh, been cool. more of an artist than me when it comes to like, I'm a performer and he can perform a little, but I perform a lot. That's what I do. And I can draw a little, but he is one of those artistically inclined people where he can paint, he can sculpt, he can draw, he can build things with his hands. He's just wired that way. And so when he tells me, I'm going to do this, like I'll send him a voice and he'll animate to it. He'll start reciting all the technical things he's going to do to make this happen. And I check out five seconds in. I'm just just watching imaginary butterflies in the air because I don't get it. But what is fascinating to me is somebody who can do what you're doing. You have to have artistic inclination, but you also have to know the technology. You have to understand it. And I think almost intuitively you have to understand how it works because... I could probably take a course in how to use a computer to build something like that. But I don't think I'd intuitively have it. Is that something that you think you've always had or did you have to build that over years? Um, both, really. Yeah. If, if I were to say I was born with it, it means I will never get any better from this point. That would be sad. <laughs> um, I... Design, you know, people in design come from all sorts of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, for me, it was art, actually. I, I have art uh, training mm -hmm. in school, and I've always wanted to be an artist until mm -hmm. I realized that, oh, I'm not that good at art. <laughs> well, I guess um, that's a relative thing, though, because art is very subjective. But were you okay? When you say you weren't that good at art, were you not getting the feedback you wanted from the world at large? Or did you look at your work and say, I'm just not satisfied with what I'm doing? Um, I think it was the latter. But okay. I mean, I say that kind of jokingly because yeah. the bigger thing for me was uh, while trying to get into game art, I realized what I liked doing with art was telling mm. stories and mm. uh, kind of communicating with players in some sense through my work right and that's why i was like oh actually i like this design thing more yeah i was just... and then my of course my parents were like we put you through all that you know art school i like expensive <laughs> like college and all that and now you're doing games <laughs> I, you know for years like like i'm 51 so when i grow up uh when i grew up games were what they are now, they're wonderful ways to pass the time. And the cutting edge of games back then were pretty avant-garde in the ways that they made you use your mind. It wasn't just, as I like to joke, shooting dots with other dots. That was about the extent of our graphics back in the early 80s. They began to get you to think way beyond uh, the normal sphere of a gaming experience, like a pinball machine or Pac-Man. They began to add dimensions. But... To a parent 
who is used to working a job in a cubicle or working a job uh, at a trade or working for a, a big company that is reputable, to see somebody undertake that kind of career, you think, well, that's not even a career, is it? You know, to them, it's never you know, going to be what they grew up with. It's never going to be something they understand until you show them that, hey, um, I can actually live like an adult based on what they're paying me to do this, this hobby. And I think artists, we always have that, that fight with the previous generation to prove that what we're doing, yes, actually is valid. Yes, and I do sit at a cubicle. <laughs> but you sit at Respawn's cubicles, and I've been to Respawn, and they're not like your typical gaming company. I don't see that as a place where they're just worker bees come in and everyone's a drone, and it's this, oh, it's crunch. Everybody, we got to crunch and get all this finished and this and that. I, that's it's a much brighter and happier and more chilled place than I expected a you know, an office for a game company to be like. Yeah. Um, I mean, now it's home. But now it's everybody's home. Yeah. When, when, when we used to be at the office, I, I loved it. Like you said, very bright, very open, not too open. There are places where you can go and kind of, you know, focus on your work. Right. But uh, the atmosphere is is great people just chatting about work here and there and you kind of pick up on discussions and you can you know go and put your two cents in come back and work and yeah it's very organic i like that yeah and they've been i mean um i think a lot of people i, I was watching uh, an interview <laughs> what i do on the weekends i don't do this during the week because i still believe in monday through friday being more i don't want to say business-like but i'm a little bit more disciplined and on the weekends, I will lay in bed and I'll get my phone and I'll start watching stuff on YouTube that I find to be interesting. And it could be anything. And Robert Redford, um, who is one of the biggest movie stars ever, you know, these days he's basically retired. But he's a classic movie star. And he um, grew up in Los Angeles and he wanted to get out of L.A. Not many people grow up here and want to leave it when they end up in show business. But he wanted to get out. And he kept getting out till he got to Europe because he wanted to be an artist. And he studied art and he had a showing here and there. And then he says, I don't know if Europe's going to work for me. And he went to New York and he ended up getting into acting. The thing that he has won universal acclaim and success for by lying and saying, I just want to be an art director. This is a, people would say, what are you here for? And he'd say, art directors sounded like it was an official thing. And so, and he says, I had no idea what an art director was. I really still wanted to be an artist, but people would ask me and I'd say art director. And one guy said, well, if you want to be an art director, you should go to this school and study and do these plays and build sets and things like that. And he goes, okay, so I'll do that. And at one point they said, all right, we want you to take this acting class so you can understand the whole thing. And he says, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was angry. Uh, his mother had passed away and he was about 18 or 19. And he says, and I had a wall up in front of me and I didn't want to communicate with anyone. And he finally got sort of suckered into a class and his teacher said, you should continue this. And before you knew it, he was in a completely different, on a completely different path. And he started, you know, kind of like you. He started doing one thing and then just sort of discovered something about himself. And 
I love that people leave their minds open enough to have this thing, as you would say, organically happen. The way you create now is organic, and the way you seem to have come into game designing is an organic one. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, if you would have asked me, I guess, like, you know, the, the child me, mm -hmm. if I knew I was going to end up making games, I would not, I would have laughed because my parents, you know, when I was growing up, were very strict about video games. Uh -huh. They were kind of traditional, oh, video games are bad. It will ruin our child. Right. So I was... I didn't grow up with video games like some of the people um, in the industry have. I never had a, well, I mean, I had like one brick Game Boy that just was falling apart because, you know, that this was the only thing I had. My mother would hide it up on the closet, in the closet, and she didn't know I knew, but, you know, I'd bring up a chair and sneak up there and. But that was it. Every right. uh, every Christmas, uh, top of the list was Nintendo 64, but I always got number two, which was telescope, microscope, anything that would make me a doctor <laughs> or, you know, right. <laughs> a now, scientist. This is a story I hear a lot, but um, do you think it was a cultural thing for you or was it just your parents? Um, could be. I'm a little yeah. careful to say because I don't know how other people in similar cultures right grew up it it might have been also uh have to do with me being a girl oh really kind of. yeah I, they i i had a great interest in video games and i bet my parents knew that and maybe it just didn't didn't click with them that i liked it way more than they thought i don't gotcha. know gotcha. i actually don't know but um yeah, so I largely did not grow up playing video games. And mm. to be honest, the first real gaming console that I had was uh, in my college years. Mm. I had um, I had a very bad, a, like really bad uh, relationship with a man. Mm. <laughs> and uh, the only thing good that came out of that relationship was... He he gave me a uh, used PlayStation Two, mm -hmm. and uh, I was severely depressed. Mm -hmm. But that was like the only thing that would you know keep me going. And I had this tiny uh, CRT monitor attached mm -hmm. to it in my room, and I played uh, Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater uh -huh. in it. And that was when I was like, okay, I gotta do something. Right. Right. And. Uh, yeah, so that that's kind of how I got into it, and uh, you know, then continues the story of like trying to do art. Oh, wait, art's not my thing, and then right. getting into design and learning about it, coming to the U.S. to do it uh, as as a profession. Gotcha. Where did you come from? You came to the U.S. to do this. Where were you before? Korea. Korea. Okay. So, and this is the funny thing is that. This is why I asked if you thought it was a cultural thing, because on the one hand, you always hear that in Asian culture, the academics are paramount and you, you know, you should go into these professional fields, mainly science and medicine. And you see a lot of that. And I don't want to speak for every Asian out there because Asian culture is not a monolith. There's Korean culture, there's Japanese culture, there's, there's, you know, there's Vietnamese culture, there's, there's. Indian culture, which is, um, you know, a different part of Asia altogether. But 
you hear about, you know, parents that come from this culture and just like American culture, um, if I were to describe it in some monolithic way, we are hell bent on turning our kids into sports stars or celebrities. And so I can, you know, that's painting with a broad brush, but you see trappings of this. And yet, if you look at some of the best gamers in the world professionally, Koreans rule. I mean, I don't know whatever it is, but if you look at the rankings, it's, it's just like in golf. Uh, South Korean uh, golfers are dominating in golf. They're dominating in video games. And I guess there's a couple of, you know, European players in there, a couple of American players in there. But for whatever reason, these are cultures that embrace these things. At least I as mean, far as I can see. It's a joke, but what are you going to do with teenagers that aren't allowed to play games but are taught to be overachievers? They become esports athletes. Yeah, I they, guess. I mean, what do teenagers do? They rebel. <laughs> They rebel, of course. And even in your own way, you rebelled. You climbed up the thing, you grabbed the uh, the Game Boy, and you played it. And you took, you know, all of that, that discipline and you turned it into this career in video games. You know? So, yeah, it doesn't... Yeah, and, and like I said, I don't... Just like you, I don't want to speak for a culture, but there's certain things that you just can't help but notice and see, is there a trend here? And so, yeah, I mean, maybe there is. But... I think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think there is a certain climate that um, nurtures things like esports. Yeah. For um, as someone who grew up, you know, in the midst of like the whole explosion with StarCraft in Korea, mm -hmm. I have a theory that, you know, um, those teenagers in Korea, mm -hmm. a lot of you, you are right. A lot of us weren't allowed to play video games. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the thing, what do you do with a lot of people that want to play video games, but you know, they, they're not really allowed to at home. Right. And then you have blazing fast internet and great connectivity because the country is so dense. Right. Put them together. You have these um, places called PC bong. Uh -huh. which is, you know, internet cafe, basically. Right. And kids will go there. Kids will go there and they'll congregate and they'll play video games. And I think that's kind of how um, vid video games became a very social and um, organized mm. thing for right. Korea. Right. And I wonder if, you know, like those two things came together to create a, the perfect climate for that. It could be. I'm I'm uh, very curious about how certain social movements and technological movements happen, and it's sometimes it just feels like it's by accident. But I, I think when you get people involved in something, people repetitively do something because it works for them. And so, as you say, if you're denying these kids a chance to play something, they desperately want to play. And as you say, there's an environment with superior technology and and Wi-Fi connectivity. They're, they're going to choose to do something that they just feel like they've got to do. And then, yes, it, then what do you get? You get an explosion. And, and I'm sure there's got to be this diaspora of uh, talent from this one area into not just playing the games, but like you say, designing the games. Do you, do you feel like maybe there's this influx of people coming from Korea to other parts of the world where they get to work in games? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
I mean, that was me. So yeah, <laughs> I gotta you. say, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> obviously nobody can deny your experience, but I wonder if you feel like there's this um, wave of people who are coming into this industry and uh, maybe from circumstances like that, where in an area where maybe you weren't encouraged to do it, but now you just can't deny it anymore. Nope. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah. my parents are very happy Good. for me now so they understand and yeah. i think the culture has shifted a lot that's good um yeah because you know they're they they see that it's not i don't know what to say it's not just games you know <laughs> there's exactly. a whole industry yeah. behind it with so many different professions right yeah and that's what i learned is for years i mean i've been doing voices for games for 20 years and i paid attention I paid attention to them peripherally because I was a stand-up comedian for about 10 years out of college and so and I did it professionally and the most I could say for my parents my parents had divorced when I was very young and so my dad was busy working in government on the you know hundreds of miles away and so he would just sort of check in and see where I was and my mom I think just wanted to make sure that I got out of the house one day <laughs> I, it wasn't as though I was discouraged from doing anything, but there was a focus on at least get your schooling in. And so when I ended up in stand-up comedy, I never heard a word of protest from either of them, but um, it wasn't like they were overwhelmingly encouraging either. I think they just wanted to make sure that, okay, are you paying your bills? Are you, you, know, are you not holding up liquor stores for rent money? Okay, then go do it and... I think they became prouder when they saw that I was able to not just sort of get by, but be happy doing it. And I segued from comedy into voice acting. And I started paying more attention to games again when I started doing my stream. And that was last year. And it was sort of, it was sort of like not seeing a friend for about 15 years. And then you come across them one day and they have blossomed into this person that <laughs> is amazing. And they were kind of cool before, but now you look at them and you think, my God, you're just, you're, you're a world champion at just life. And that's what it was like with games. I look at them now and I think, I didn't know games could do that. I, I didn't know games could be that. And I didn't know that the gaming culture is more than just a bunch of people that like to play the same game. It's much, much more than that. Because the interactions people have with each other about the game when they're not even playing it, it's constant. You know, chats on Discord and, and Lord knows how many other platforms. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's life. It's, yeah. it's become life. It's not, it's not just a hobby anymore. And it's not just, uh, going back to the whole nerdum thing, it's not just for nerds. Right. I think you would be hard-pressed to find somebody that may profess to not like video games, but then wouldn't be absolutely fascinated at at least one or two games that you could show them based on what they're interested in in the world away from video games. Because I, my brother and I joke about this. If you have ever thought about it, or done it, or dreamed about it, it's probably already a video game. Somebody's probably already created a world around it. 
And it's not just about playing video games either. Uh, you don't have to be a, a gamer to consume it as, you know, a, a hobby. Mm -hmm. My sister, she doesn't play video games mm -hmm. that much, but she is... She used to go, uh, we, we used to go see uh, StarCraft tournaments uh -huh. in person when we were kids because uh -huh. she just loves watching it. It's like a sport for her. And then after that, it was League of Legends. She would know every rule, every item, every strategy, every uh, famous, you know, esports uh, uh -huh. pro gamer in the, in the League uh, tournaments. Uh -huh. But she doesn't play League of Legends. And yet it, it is a part of her life. Yeah. Now, how interesting is that? Because we're aware, we're very aware of the sports world and the fans of, di of different sports. Like here in the United States, uh, NFL football and NBA basketball are probably our two biggest sports. And you have tens of millions of people that are absolutely fanatical about them. Hence the term fan. And yet, how many of them actually play? I mean, aside from picking the ball up occasionally and throwing it around, <laughs> how many of these people are just out of shape people who are stuck to the couch, but they can't wait to watch the draft to see what players are going to go to their favorite team, to see what defensive or offensive scheme they're going to use? Like you say, they can recite by rote every single detail of a team that plays a game that they themselves don't play. Exactly. And that's yeah. how my sister has always been. She'd be like, oh, they should have taken that road and ganked mid and taken BF sword instead of, <laughs> you know, she, she'd just get all worked up because she knows about all these things. And yet she didn't need to play it. it she is just... not, has it not motivated her to try the game just to get something from the player's <laughs> point of view? It's like, oh, now I understand why they did that. Has she ever been curious? Um, she's tried. I tried to get her to, to play a couple rounds and she was like, right. well, I mean, I'm not making these epic plays, so it's not fun to watch me play. <laughs> she set that bar so high watching all these <laughs> world champs and like, well, I can't even do the first thing. So <laughs> no, I'm going to go back to what I'm good at and analyzing the game. You know, I would think though, as a, as a game designer, that would be a thrill for me to find out that maybe somebody can't play the game I've designed very well, but they are absolutely a fan of the game itself and the people who play it to the point where they can break the game down into its component parts. I mean, that would be thrilling for me to learn that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when you're designing a game, I mean, we're talking about how games are life because they, they don't just incorporate an experience that you're having while you're playing the game. There are ideas that the games uh, envelop that you take with you when you're done playing them. And you can use that as a springboard to communicating with somebody on the other side of the world that plays the same game. And I've learned this from playing Apex Legends and learning that people on the other side of the planet like the character that I voice and now they have this they have this um, sort of connection with, with at least Pathfinder, even if it's not so much me. And I have to think that if you're designing a virtual reality game, then even though the audience isn't going to be as big because not as many people have VR headsets, do you think that that connection people tend to share is possibly going to be deeper if it's surrounding a VR game? 
because of the experience of VR? Um, not quite. I wouldn't say just because you're immersed mm -hmm. uh, around you with the game around you, mm -hmm. but um, because I, I feel like no matter how immersive mm -hmm. a game is, what goes on inside your head is the abstract of it. Okay. So, you know, I could be playing Candy Crush, mm -hmm. but does that mean I'm not into it as much as uh, a VR game? Mm -hmm. No, it just means I'm, I'm something else is going on in my head. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the type of games inherently increases or decreases the connection you have with it. Mm -hmm. uh, then what, what do I think does that? I don't know. I really think it comes down to the interactions that you have in the context and, and what you, what you seek mm -hmm. because I, uh, and, and, and you can correct me if I've misunderstood what we're talking about, mm -hmm. but uh, I play games nowadays, mostly just like I'm enjoying a round of sports with my friends. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I have weak gamey arms. Uh, I can't <laughs> do sports. Uh, but, um, and I can't see my friends, right. especially nowadays. Right. So for me, it's just a way to connect while yeah. we shoot at the same thing. Hey, how's your day going? <laughs> right, I'm right. fine, thanks. Um, and that for me, my engagement with the game itself mm -hmm. is probably low. Uh -huh. But... In, in the whole sense of like what I'm doing, I am there, I'm talking, I'm enjoying this moment with my friends. Right. Okay. So this is, yeah, there's this concurrent phenomenon happening. You may be playing a game that is fairly basic, or at least what you're demanded to do in the game is not something you have to be that focused on, but you're getting belonging with your friends. You're getting this shared experience that allows you to connect when you yeah, you, you might not have had that ability to do that before because of the pandemic, or maybe they live so far away, you can't have it. And I actually have a friend, uh, our kids went to the same school before the pandemic, and he's Canadian, but he lives in LA, and he does exactly what you do. They play a game where you shoot at things, but they're really doing it so they can talk to each other. These are guys he's known for decades, and he just wants to check in with them. And instead of picking up a phone and just having a chat, They'd rather have an experience together. So, yeah, I, I see what you mean then. That as long as you're having an experience with somebody, it may not necessarily uh, track with the intensity of the game itself. It's the fact that you're simply having that experience that opens the door for that connection to continue. Right. Yeah. And, um, I mean... <laughs> In, in a video game, you don't have awkward silences either. <laughs> if you yes, have an awkward silence, you go, ah, enemy over there. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing is that um, uh, it depends on what one considers an awkward silence. And that, you know, that leads me to a, another idea that there are so many different kinds of games. There are games like Apex that are, you know, they can be fairly loud, intense games, but there are moments where you're very quiet because you're sneaking around. And I have not yet gotten into uh, Medal of Honor yet because I'm afraid, um, because I don't know how I'm going to handle the VR yet. So I've really got to 
I've got to gear up for it because I know it's going to be intense. But I'm sure there are moments that are fairly quiet because you're building tension, you're building suspense, or maybe you're maybe you're just fiddling around with something in a room because it's VR. And I guess my question is, are there games that you think players might gravitate towards because of the silence in them? Or are there games that you think people gravitate towards because they just want that constant, you know, stimuli? Both. Absolutely both. Yeah. Um, and, and there are people that will, depending on what they feel like, you know, play those one kind of game and then, ah, you know what, I just want to kind of like wind down and shut the world out. Uh-huh. Then you play a quieter game. I think games like, you know, Journey, it's more like the this the sense of exploration and uh wonder and then you know you you're quietly thinking to yourself mm-hmm. and then there are games you know like call of duty or you know apex that are just high moments high octane moments right except of course the sneaking but you know you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> there's a little bit of sneaking but you can't sneak for very long when there are a bunch of other people well, trying to kill yeah you. i seem to be really bad at it oh, yeah <laughs> Well then, you're in my tribe because I'm. Well, I don't know. You you never added me to the game. Oh really? Nope. Okay. Or you you weren't online. (laughs) Oh well, then I gotta find you because I'm gonna add you because now we gotta squad up because um I trust me I I was playing with my son last night and he's nine and he's fascinated by Apex, and I thought okay it's not normally a game I would let a nine year old play but you're gonna go in with dad, dad's in the game. I can sort of give you context for it. And now he loves it. But the first few times he played, it was very intense for him. So I was making sure that everything was cool. But um, he and I were on last night. We were looking for a third to play with. And my mods were all kind of busy. And I looked at a couple of uh, people I had made friends with online. And we found uh, a great gal to play with who was awesome at the game. But the next time I know you're on, I'm going to find you. We will friend up. And you can jump in with us. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fun. And yeah, I I have great uh, word filtering. See, I I have I've gone for fifty five minutes without a single swear word. You can curse as much as you want. This is this is <laughs> my. No, you can say fuck, shit, damn, whatever. I don't care. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna bother me. And you haven't seen the other interviews I've done. We, you know, we let it rip. So, yeah, no, I, I'm fine with that. In fact, last night, my son was joking with this, uh, with this lady we were playing with. He was joking about the fact that I tried to play the Winter Express in Apex. And I have nothing but seething hatred for that, for that I mean, loathing for that uh, event. I absolutely hate it because I'm awful at it. That's the, the only reason. First, I couldn't understand the objective. And then once I understood the objective, I then it became even more clear that I was horrible at it. And I let loose a string of obscenities. It was about 20 or 30 minutes of nothing but me just hurling obscenities at the screen. And I was streaming while I was doing it, so it was all live. And my kids in the next room said, we can hear every word you say, Dad. <laughs> And last night he was telling this lady we were gaming with, yeah, my dad was saying F you and F you and F that. They go to school on Zoom and go, my dad said this. And 
Yeah. And then you so, get a call from the teacher. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we homeschool them now, so we're the teacher. Ah. So, yeah, that's all on me. Uh, it's actually more on Mama. She's she's doing the lion's share of the uh, the homeschooling. But um, but to that point, we're we're schooling our children to think outside of the box. I know it's an overused term, but we don't want them to think about vocations in the way that we were made to think about vocations. You must do this. You must do this acceptable thing, and you must get in line for a job that pays this, and then everything will fall into place. We don't want them thinking that way at all. And that doesn't mean that they're going to end up exactly where we hope they're going to end up. It just means that we want them to think about games in a different way that you and I were raised to think about games. And that's one reason why I would love to play with you and my son, for my son to talk to a game designer, to someone that, you know, with someone that makes these things that he is in love with playing. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be down. Yeah, you'll be our honored guest. So, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. actually play with my boss's uh, kid. He's five years old, oh, and yeah. he's into Apex. Oh, really? And we play together. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, yeah, one of the reasons why I was able to let uh, my son Remy in is that it's a bloodless game. I mean, there's this brief, I guess, flash of red if somebody actually gets dropped. Uh, I think. I might even be imagining that. Uh, I don't know. But for the most part, it's there's carnage, and I tell them to say, "Look, son, this is a this is a murder game, okay?" <laughs> but it is, you know, everybody regenerates and respawns, and you know, it's not real life. And he knows this, but um, I I felt like I had to be very careful about that because if there's one thing I have noticed with a lot of my viewers is that they spend more time playing games literally than they do anything else, and that includes sleeping. And so I'm always careful to talk to these people and let them know I'm a big fan of balance. I think that playing a game is great, but you've got to fill your life with other things. And even as someone who works on games, I'm sure you find that every now and then you have to step away from it to live your life so you can have something in the tank when you come back to offer. That's, that's absolutely correct. And that is why I need this break. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Well, you were talking about that. You mentioned that on Twitter. Patches, even after a game is finished, it's not really finished. Because there's a community that interacts with you and says, this isn't working or this pisses us off or we like this. And so a patch is when you go in and you're basically just fixing stuff, right? I, I guess you could say fixing. Sometimes... I mean, sometimes things aren't, aren't broken, but you realize that a majority of people want it a different way and okay. you want to create a, a better experience for them. Right. Is that where the term patch comes from, that you're essentially patching something up, but it's taken on a broader meaning? I think so. Okay. Now, for you, um, are you trying to sort of maintain a balance between the amount of time that you'll work on a game, the amount of time that you might actually play a game, and the amount of time that that you want to be away from a screen in general, to just be doing something that is screenless, for lack of a better word, something that's totally in the world and not a virtual one? Um, well, 
before we yeah. were all in a pandemic. Yeah. Pre-pandemic. This is all different during a pandemic. <laughs> I think maybe in six months, this pandemic will have lifted um, based on the vaccine rollout and all that. Fingers crossed. Not everything will go back to the way it was, but I think we will find more opportunities to be outside in the world safely. So, Hopefully. you know, maybe before the pandemic and afterwards, is there an approach that you liked to take to make sure that you got away and then came back refreshed? Um. Yeah, definitely. I, when I do play video games, I play on a console because I would rather, even if it's, you know, looking at another screen, I would mm -hmm. rather be at a different place than my desk, uh -huh. which I spend most of my days. Mm -hmm. uh, and before I like traveling, you know, I, I, I love cooking, although I'm not great at it. Uh, and I like interacting and playing with my pets. So that's kind of how I would spend my time. And I actually feel like I get more creative energy for my work when I'm not, when I'm not playing video games. Right. And, and that could be kind of weird because aren't you supposed to get ideas while you play video games? Well, it kind of varies for people, but I yeah. think most of my inspiration comes from just the small things I do in life. Yeah. Oh, I can totally agree with that, too, because, um, I mean, we're all artists when you're creating something. It, it is an art and you have to live life to feed yourself, to feed your soul. Otherwise, what are you going to be creatively expressing if it's not something that you're, you know, feeling that you're thinking and all of that stuff comes from your experiences. And so if a person's experience is only in front of a screen, they're going to limit what they're able to express, in my opinion. And so living in the world, being, you know, uh, being in a kitchen is a vastly different feeling than being at a, at a desk with a screen in front of you. If you're in a kitchen, you're making food, you're making something that literally keeps people alive. And beyond that can give them an amazing uh, sensory experience that involves taste and smell, something video games can't do yet. <laughs> <laughs> yet, I say yet because I don't put anything beyond them. But playing with your pet, that's a sensory experience a video game can't quite give you because you're, I mean, especially your pets. I mean, you have, do you have, I know you have a rat, right? Four. Four rats? Okay. Is that the entirety of your animal kingdom? Or do you have other kinds of animals too? Um, at the moment, yes. Okay, so you have four rats. And um, I, it's a good thing my wife is not in the room. She does not do well with rodents. <laughs> Whether they're tame or not tame, she doesn't do well with rodents. But um, ever since I saw, this is off the beaten path, but um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that came out in 1989, all right? So there's a sequence in that movie where Indy has to deal with rats. And um, they had to have all of these rats in the scene. And they said, for that scene, we actually um, bred rats in a lab so that they had no <laughs> disease, no nothing. They were a perfectly, you know, uh, healthy, clean rats that we didn't have to go to New York City and pull out of a sewer. And Harrison Ford said, I loved it because I had a pet rat as a kid. 
And oh. they showed him playing with the rats, and it was like it was a baby. He's like, oh, you. And this is Harrison Ford, tough Indiana Jones, is playing with this little rat. I did and not I thought, know that. Yeah. There's a, you could probably find it on YouTube, the making of like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. When they get to the rat sequence, he talks about it. He says, oh, yeah. And he's like, ah, he's like almost giving <laughs> the rat up and almost giving it a kiss. And I thought, that's awesome. I had no idea that you could have a pet rat. Yeah, they're they're really nice. I think um, for me, it's uh, the perfect balance. They are able to because you know you usually keep them in a group and in a in a cage, big but still kind of an enclosure. Right. So for me, it was the perfect balance. I think of the time that I can time and attention that I can give. So what is a like compared to other pets? Like uh, I. I had a girlfriend back in the 90s. She had a pet ferret. I knew nothing about ferrets. And I learned a bit. Of, they're curious animals. And, um, and the way when she would let it out, it would almost slither around her apartment. It would get behind every little nook and cranny of furniture. It could fit anywhere. And she said, oh, by the way, if, I'm, if you're missing a pencil or a pen or a ruler, then Toby, her ferret, probably found it and stored it away somewhere. That's funny. Yeah. What are the like little personality quirks that rats tend to have? That, um, that sorry. <laughs> well, that, that maybe you don't find in other species of animals. Are they things that rats tend to do that you don't find cats and dogs doing? And is it more of a species thing or do they have distinct personalities like other pets do? I haven't really kept cats well, I mean, I, I have one cat for a little bit and then dogs for a little bit, but not really. I'm not really a cat or dog person, uh, so I can't compare them. Okay. But I think what people don't know about rats is that they're really affectionate. They mm -hmm. do form a connection mm -hmm. with humans and um, they're kind of in the middle between cat and a dog where they're okay being left alone. They'll relax. They'll, they still want to kind of, you know, when I, when I have my rats out on the couch while I'm mm -hmm. gaming, they'll, they'll sometimes keep their distance. Mm -hmm. But if they want affection, they'll come by and they'll snuggle by me. Uh -huh. And they'll, they'll take pets and, you know, they'll give me kisses and stuff like that. And then they're, you know, if they're done, they'll just kind of go to a corner and, and, you know, stay there for a little bit. Right. Uh, and I don't think people know that they, they do grow attached to you. And, uh, for me, I, I can feel that whenever I take them to the vet, when I'm handing oh, the vet, yeah. uh, my rat, like, Hey, here you go. You know, uh, she's going to examine you. And yeah. the rat is just like, no, like outstretched arms. Please do not yeah. do this. Um, they know you by smell, sound. Uh -huh. So, you know, they'll follow you around and beg for treats or pets. Uh -huh. and, and they're they pretty smart. Aren't, aren't oh, they? they're very smart. They're very smart. They're very smart. I, well, and this is, uh, this is not the way you want to find this out, you know, if, you're, if you have rats as, as pets. But um, uh, down the street from me, where my friend who plays video games lives, in his area, apparently decades ago, a woman... Um, was sort of a hoarder and she kept everything and she let every animal wild or not into her house and that included rats and the rats bred 
and there oh, are no. that one section of town, every single house seems to have rat problems. And they said, and they're very smart. You can't just um, kill them with rat poison. It won't work. The only thing that works is traps. And he said, and it's sad because every now and then I would see a rat in my yard and I'd say, buddy, get, get out. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't come any closer. There's a trap around here because he looks at them and he doesn't have like, you know, he doesn't have a problem with them except, um, you know, he doesn't want them. He doesn't want undomesticated rats in his house, you know. I wouldn't want them either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a difference. Like, I love dogs, but I don't want coyotes in my yard. <laughs> and they're dogs, people. They're just really smart, really wild dogs. So, yeah, I would imagine if, if your rats are as smart as I think they are, even when you get in the car with them to take them somewhere, they probably get a little tense. Oh, yes, they know. Yeah, they know. And then when you get to the building, you could probably feel it like in their backs, too. You could probably feel them tensing up, maybe. So, yeah, I feel you. I haven't had to have a I haven't been able to have a pet in a long time. But I remember trips to the vet. The animal always knows this isn't normal. They have great memory. Yeah. And if they form attachments with you, they can probably read your energy and feel like something is not right. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, some rats are a little more observant in that sense. Some uh, rats aren't. I definitely had rats that, you know, if I'm really upset and, and crying, you know, they'd be very quiet. Okay. And they, they kind of sit need, still. Yeah, like maybe you need a little affection maybe. Will they, will they come to you and soothe you when they can if they know you um, need it? Sometimes they do. I'm okay. not sure if they know that as emotion. Right. Okay. Uh, but like they would know that something is different. So okay. they just kind of calm down, stay still. All right. They're not going to like nibble my fingernails like they <laughs> used to. Right. I've, I've had definitely have rats that would just come by and kiss, give me kisses on my hands. I, and yeah, that's the kind of things you have a rat for. Yeah. Okay. Because I was going to wonder, it's like, um, the ferret would show affection by sort of like nuzzling, especially like under, uh, my girlfriend's chin, it would nuzzle her. Like that was her favorite thing. So yeah. Like how does a rat do affection? Is it sort of, are they nuzzlers or they, you know, animals usually like to nibble a little bit when they're playful. And I would mm -hmm. think rats, you know, especially rats, I mean, their teeth are so important for them, you know, cause they could, they could get through quite a bit. Can't they as a rat? Uh, yes, yeah. I've, I've tried, I still have a, a severed nerve in my finger. Really? Because I tried to break up. I was looking after someone else's, uh, rats okay. and they got into a fight. Right. I did not want them to, you know, have like a, end up with a cut. Okay. So I just reached out and that is something you should never, ever, ever do. Right. When a rat is really angry and mm. seeing blood, you will see blood. Okay. <laughs> And the rat just bit me here, clamped, and I was shaking and panicking oh, and screaming, and the rat never let go. Wow. And it was like a uh, a quarter inch to a third of an inch cut in there. Oof. And I still have it. It's been uh, 12 years. 12 years? I, I have a numb spot. <laughs> okay. How big is the numb spot? Show us on the finger where the numb spot is. Well, it's not really small because it's not really big. I mean, wow, sorry, because okay. it's like, you know, it's like about here. Amazing. 
Well, now you have a gameplay excuse. It's like, yeah, I know. Sorry, I would have, I would have knocked that opponent for you. But hey, rat injury. It's kind of funny because I got stitches, and uh, while I was trying to regain, you know, a full range of motor skills or whatever right. you call it, a range of motion, uh, the doctor said, "Do you have something you could do to like keep, you know, doing this?" And I was like, "Well, I got video games." Yeah. The doctor was like. Yeah, that'd be okay. perfect. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'm curious about the cooking, too, because I, I, I mean, I think we all know people that like to cook. I even like to cook. And I'm trust me, I, I'm worse than you. If you think you're not that great, I can I can beat that. All right. I I can I can make inedible things with great joy. I mean, I've got my music going, I've got the smells going, and I'm absolutely convinced that what I'm making is just going to be mwah, but nah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I just don't seem to learn very well, but I have become fascinated with baking, and it's only because I've seen other people doing it. Like, I started watching the Great British Baking Show, and I it finally sunk in. I thought, I think we need to try this, and so as a family, we're going to bake, and I know I'm not going to, I'm going to ruin it somehow if i'm involved but i'm going to try so for you when you're when you're cooking are you stovetop or do you try to bake because it's two different experiences there i'm not a baker okay yeah there's there's a precision involved in baking that i don't have <laughs> i don't have that patience either no so what are the things that you'll that you'll make on the stovetop then is it like is it centered around a certain cuisine or is it are you up for anything um mostly korean cooking really so because i yeah because i miss home and i miss my mom's cooking it's, it's home and it's comfort food for you right yes and that's the closest i'll get to my mom's cooking you right. know trying to do the way do the things the way she did well okay i have pretty much zero knowledge of korean cuisine except for what i've gleaned from listening to johnny young talk <laughs> about uh, i think it's pronounced pho is that how you pronounce it? Or pho? Pho would be Vietnamese. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> then I have absolutely zero uh, to do with Korean. Because Johnny is Korean and he loves pho. Loves it. Talks it is it pronounced pho, by the way. Pho? Okay. So I've found a way to be wrong twice about one thing. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a record for even me. So, okay. He is absolutely, seems to be obsessed with pho. But, uh, and it's, it's basically revolves around noodles, correct? Did I get that right? All right. So what is, is there a staple of Korean cuisine? I know that um, barbecue is a big thing with Korean cuisine, is it not? I think it's a, it's a gateway. Okay, it's a gateway drug. Gateway, yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you were to make me, because I want to try everything. Like, I, there's only so much spice I can take. But, like, I want to try just about any kind of food out there. What would you make for somebody that says, I've never tried Korean food? Like, what's the staple of a Korean diet that you could make for them to make you feel like you feel when you're at home? It's like, what is home for you in a dish of Korean food? Um, Korean home cooking is actually, it's not so much a dish, but a spread. Okay. It's uh, usually like a, a one main soup and okay. then thing of rice with a bunch of little side dishes called panchan. 
Okay. And uh, and panchan it could be something like kimchi or uh, like dried seaweed or uh, fried anchovies. It and I think and I think real Korean cuisine is really that whole picture. You can't just um, point at one of those and say like, oh, like this is how you do Korean food. It okay. is really just the spread. Gotcha. So I would probably do the same. And that way, at least if you don't like something, you don't have to eat it. You can eat something else. Try for something else, yeah. <laughs> well, that makes me think, I mean, I guess every, probably just about every culture has a spread, as you would say, because nobody does just one food. But when I think about a spread, I also think about Spanish food because it's uh, Spanish cuisine because they have tapas. And it's their way of saying, here's a little bit of something. And now we want you to try a little bit of something else. We want to take you on a journey over the course of a meal. Whereas these days, American cuisine seems to center around an entree. And you may or may not have a dessert and a starter. You're going to have this entree and it'll be three or four things, but it's all on the same plate. And you might put it all together, but it seems to be this one course. And a lot of it might be because Americans got themselves in a hurry. <laughs> and we don't have time to sit around the table with family. But my wife is Venezuelan. And, uh, and she's not even a big eater. But for her, the, um, the, the experience of a meal is something that should be an experience. So it should be, and ideally, with family. And so when you say spread, it seems to me like that would be what you're thinking about is everybody take a little something from somewhere else and we're all going to share this together because you wouldn't cook all this stuff for one person and not, you know, expect them to have maybe someone else to share it with. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that's why I don't do it a lot these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, your, uh, your husband. Is it a husband or boyfriend? boyfriend? Okay, boyfriend. Sorry. Um, is that something you guys will do together as sort of uh, an occasion? Say, okay, it's time. Let's, let's, you know, gaming together, I'm sure, is a thing. But do you guys do meals together? Are you going to cook something up together and make a spread? Is that something you're able to do every now and then? Um, I think for Thanksgiving, we had a proper, well, as proper as we can get between the two of us, a proper Thanksgiving uh, a spread right i don't think we've done like a proper korean spread because with the uh the assortment of panchan that you have to make it would not only take a lot of time but a lot of ingredients for so few of us uh -huh. so a lot of it might go to waste you know it, it would go bad gotcha so usually when i cook korean food for the two of us it's one main thing because mm -hmm. There, there are types of dishes that are more entree types in Korea right? as well. Right. I would think, too, if you've had a day where if you look at your typical day where you know you're going to put some work in on the game, you also, like if you have a, a substantial portion of your day where you get time with your animals and you get time maybe just uh, cooking something and having a good meal, by the time you finish with that, extracurricular stuff well i didn't want to call it extracurricular these are important things when you get back to the game that's where i agree with you in that um you're going to be recharged in a way 
that you just you're going to be running on fumes if you can't get experiences like that in your day. Sure, you could grab a sandwich to go. You could you could you know pet your rats a couple of times and then be back to what you were doing. But I, I would think your work would suffer without that, without these outlets. Definitely, I think I don't know what about it. It is maybe just coming back with a different. Um, Fresh eyes uh-huh. makes you think about approach problems in a different way. Yeah, well, I have um, I've been fascinated by the human mind and how it works for years, and I even did therapy myself like fifteen more than fifteen years ago. And my uncle's a psychologist, and so I've traded notes with him on this stuff forever. But we all have the same basic needs, and we just approach them in different ways. But obviously. You know, belonging with other people is something. Self-worth, to be able to challenge yourself. Um, pleasure, just to be able to enjoy something on different levels. Learning, you know, just to be able to absorb new information. Things like that. And it, it's, it's eight basic needs, is the one therapist I worked with. And so, one of the reasons why I think people get out of balance, that they spend too much time doing one thing, no matter what it is, is that other needs are just going to get neglected and so this is something i try to share with uh, viewers of my stream whenever i can is that as fun as these games are they can be incredibly addictive and you have other needs that a game is just not going to be able to meet one of those needs is health keeping yourself mentally physically and emotionally balanced it's not possible to do that if all you do is one thing and so that's why I'm always curious as, uh, as to how people that work in a profession, especially yours, that demand so much time, are able to get away and attend to those other needs, even when you don't realize that that's the nuts and bolts of what you're doing. You really have to have discipline, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad with that. I, I tend to be a workaholic. I can't disconnect this I, I mean now more than ever i have a hard time disconnecting you know yeah, even, right if, there. even if i'm not like sitting down at my desk i'll be on my phone constantly talking to people about ideas and what you should be do- what we should be uh-huh. doing and right yeah so i can't really say much about it but i think the biggest thing is to physically separate yourself from that atmosphere go somewhere go outside being a you know be somewhere where you can be active touch, and kind of touch grass as they say somebody <laughs> push told yourself me that. yeah to somebody yeah somebody told me that one of their teachers it was a zoom class and the teacher said okay i want everyone to log off and go outside and touch the grass <laughs> because it, it, apparently there is a phenomenon that happens physically if you stand barefoot on grass it does something for you um, I don't know the, um, I do not know the physiology of it, but we are still wired evolutionarily speaking to be in contact with something natural. That, Interesting. Yeah. It can be very replenishing. I wish I could speak more about it. I don't want to talk out of school, but, um, I think it's a metaphor. I think people should touch grass more. We're in a very AI world. We're in a very, um, technological world and technology is amazing and it's wonderful. But so is nature. And so I'd, I love to be able to do that. And uh, so that's why I'm always curious as to how the people that design and deliver these amazing technological experiences 
what they do to restore that balance and how much of it involves, like you say, separating from what they're working on. Yeah. Again, I'm very bad at it. I can't really, I'm not a good. Oh, that's okay. Hey, <laughs> because you, you talked to a guy who woke up this morning and watched YouTube for an hour on his phone. Because you say touch grass and, and just the mention of standing on grass. I'm just thinking about the grass around here. I live in a very dense area of LA and I'm like, what yeah. about the dog poop? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, okay, not that grass, Alexa. <laughs> I mean, well, here's something we had to do, my family, because of there are fires and it's California. There's a fire burning somewhere. And so the fires were close enough to where the air quality has suffered. And then, um, just for other reasons, I think maybe emission standards have changed, that the air quality has not been great. And it's been sufficiently bad that we couldn't even go outside without worrying about there being maybe some health consequences. So, we got on our phones, our technology, and discovered the nearest neighborhood that had clean air. And it was 45 minutes away. And I said, all right, get in the car. And I drove us 45 minutes to Thousand Oaks, where there was the nearest park. It's a public park, and it had a huge grassy area, and we got out, and we ran around on the grass, and we threw the ball, and we did it. And yes, like if you live where you live, you can't just walk outside and touch grass all the time, because there's somebody, <laughs> there might, who knows what might be happening on that grass. So it takes a lot of effort sometimes to do that, to restore that balance. It does. And um, although... Talking about video games and what they cannot do, I do agree. But sometimes if you can't get out, yeah, I've recently found out that I really enjoy Need for Speed. I oh, really? Pay, Need for Speed Payback. I, I never play racing games. Uh -huh. I just, it was it was free uh, for yeah. the moment. And I was like, okay, whatever, I'll give it a shot. Because again... I was trying to disconnect from what I'm familiar with mm -hmm. to the, as much as I can anyway. Right. And for me, it, it you, you get to drive around, you know, in, in an urban area or like out in the deserts and whatnot. And that gave me the second best thing I could get mm -hmm. at that moment, just being out there driving and not thinking about anything but the road and the landscape. I was going to say, I'll bet you the reason for it was the scenery. Because the same thing happened to me. I was trying to try out new games for my stream months ago. My mod said, and I think my brother said this too, he said you should try out Forza. Forza 4, I think. It's ostensibly a racing game, but he said really what you're going to love about it is the scenery. And it's true, I played it and I thought, this is pure escapism for me. Because I can't find the Swiss Alps around the corner but I sure would love to drive around them. And I did the same thing with Flight Simulator. I wanted to fly to any city in the world, and you can literally fly to any city in the world that is not, I guess, part of a conflict zone where they won't let you <laughs> map it. But they've mapped these cities. And I used that. I took a single-engine Cessna, and I flew over my wife's old neighborhood in Caracas that she could oh, not see. Cool. She hasn't been able to see it for 30 years. And she said, oh, if you go down this road and you fly, and I'm like 500 feet off the ground trying not to crash. <laughs> and I had on the weather uh, function so that whatever the time and the weather was, 
at that moment in Caracas in real life, it was on the game. And That's so amazing. I'm fighting the wind. I said, it's really windy in Caracas, apparently. And I managed to find the building where she grew up. Wow. Yeah. So That's great. If you want a transcendent experience with a game that involves simply separating, I would recommend, if you're not into need for speed at the moment, try Flight Simulator. And you can fly over your mom's house in Korea. Is there autopilot? Because I'm... I, as as much as I fly, I am afraid of flying, and I tried playing a previous like flight right. simulator. I was really bad at it. I crashed my plane, and I was like, "This is like the thing of my nightmares." Okay, <laughs> I believe there is an autopilot, and also as a, I don't even want to say I'm a student of psychology, but I I am a um... oh exposure therapy. <laughs> is yes. It? Yes. Exposure therapy is a thing and it is documented to be pretty effective, but you have to do it supervised. Um, I mean, you can do it unsupervised through a game. You're in no danger. Um, but yes, exposure therapy. Uh, like, for example, if I said to my wife, hey, we're going to go over to Alexa's house and we're going to meet her rats. She would say, no, I can't. I said, OK, so here's what we're going to do. Here's a picture of a rat. Look how cute it is. And then here's a video of a guy playing with the rat and stroking it and it's being playful. And we would slowly build her up where she could be in the same room as a rat. And then we would slowly get to the point where she could have a rat in her hand and pet it. And that's how you graduate with exposure therapy. And um, I also am afraid, or I was afraid of flying. I'm not really afraid of it now. Um, I would still get a little anxious or tense depending on the quality of the flight but yes yeah, some of it was just due to me doing it and keeping a different frame of mind but the experience in flight simulator i think you would like because you get essentially your training in and they have a pilot talking to you giving you lessons and as you go through and you learn the mechanics of how a plane is flown it begins to take away some of the mystery that for me, fear of flying uh, revolved around control. I couldn't control whether or not the plane was going to stay in the air or crash. And to me, it always made me white knuckle because I thought there's nothing I can do. And the more I understood how a plane flew and what happens during a flight, the less it made me anxious. It is true. I have heard that. And um, since then, I have tried to learn a little bit. Uh, I even at one point thought about taking lessons. But like, I think it was, I don't know when it was, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to learn to fly in Santa Monica Airport. Uh -huh. They do lessons there. And then it was like next day, like I read an article about Harrison Ford and his uh, injury. He had to land on a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> and like, nope, I'm not going to nope. do it. <laughs> nope. That guy's a trained pilot and he almost crashed. Yeah. Um, I, it might work for you if you did that. I don't, I can't say for sure because Stanley Kubrick, the world's most notorious control freak filmmaker had a pilot's license and he became afraid to fly. And he says, I don't want to fly anymore because mm -hmm. he couldn't control every aspect of the flight if he was not the pilot. So he would not fly commercial air. He would only take a, a boat or a train or a car. That's it. And he knew how to fly. <laughs> so, 
I think for you, the answer might be Flight Simulator. I would right. highly, I'd highly recommend it. In fact, um, geez, I don't think two people can play at the same time. Otherwise, I'd go in with you and say, we're going to fly today. It's going to be <laughs> great. You pick where you want to train, you know? And, and then, I can, bef- yeah. And I can drink, right? <laughs> All you want. It's a game. <laughs> you can get loaded. So yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, I I would encourage you to try it. I would encourage you to try it because All right. I look. I'm going to need you to talk me through how we're going to get through um, Medal of Honor because I I uh, Johnny Young played it and he said after about 30 minutes he was physically ill because I think he he said he did too much. So. I have to slowly build up my tolerance. That's the that's the other thing. When you're designing a game, how much of it are you actually playing as you're designing it, and how much of that experience, like physically, is like demanding when it's a VR game? Have you did your tolerance for it go up? Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay. I mean, I it, it wasn't my first VR game. I've been okay. developing in VR for six years, but even then coming onto this project since it was such an action heavy game right. i think the first day i was like <laughs> you know I, I can't drive home uh i'm gonna need a break but then now it's really difficult to get uh get an idea of how it would feel like for newcomers like like johnny you know right because i'm so used to it well, for me, I've I've got a I got a Vive because they they sent me one, so it, it's pretty good, um, and I've used it a couple of times. So okay, so I've got your standard headset, and I've been in it and I've used it some, and it's incredible. You know, you you pick a part of the world you want to walk around in. Someone's got a someone's got a an environment they've built of that. And I was okay with that. And I could do it for 15 or 20 minutes. I had no problem because you sort of teleport, I guess. But finally, I went to um, the Swiss Alps. And do you want to try skiing? Of course I want to try skiing. Here, pick up this and pick up this. And you start moving. And it's when I started moving and seeing the scenery passing in real time. And after a few minutes of that, I thought, I'm not feeling like quite myself. And I got off. And it was okay. It was nothing earth shattering. But I thought, you know what? If I did that for long enough, I think it would be kind of an issue. Definitely. Yeah. Now, is it more so when you're sitting or is it more so when you're standing? Or does it Um, depend on the individual? It depends. Well, all of those are correct. And also, I think what with VR, like getting your VR legs, so to speak, is retraining your brain. Because the thing that causes motion sickness is that mismatch between what is physically going on Uh versus what you are seeing. And I think that is something that you retrain your brain to go, okay, I'm not physically feeling it. But if I'm seeing movement, Mm -hmm. I'm going to rewire my brain to say I am moving. And I think that is a process and it does take a while, but it's not, I don't think it's impossible for anyone. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll give myself time. I'll, I'll have a realistic 
assessment of it. But like <laughs> for like the first time we go in, how much time would you suggest would be appropriate for me? Uh, it's probably just, uh, I don't know, try five minutes and okay. then try, try 10. Um, I think whatever, if, if you're starting to feel sick, you do really want to stop though. Okay. All right. Got yeah, because you're going to regret it. It it does hit you a little slower. Does it? Okay. <laughs> Once you're out of it, you're like, uh... <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm going to have to be very careful about it then. Um, but no, I'm looking forward to that because the, uh, the game itself, the Medal of Honor game, also, in addition to having the campaign, I guess, that single player, is that what it's called? Sort of the single player campaign? Correct. Okay. So there's that, but you also have multiplayer. Right. And there yep. are these different environments where you basically going around trying to snipe each other. Snipe, shotgun, shotgun, whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is it teams of people or is it always every person for themselves? Uh, there's five game modes and I think two out of five are team based. Okay. Got it. I, man, um, I think I will have to go through some sort of training exercise. Is there something built in the game? I know that I know from being Sarge where I had to record, you know, all right, let's go to the firing range. You know, I had to do that. And then I had to sometimes criticize, you know, well, that was awful. Or, you know, good shooting soldier. So <laughs> I know that yes. there's a, yeah, there's a training uh, component to the game, but is there a component to the game where they realize, all right, you may have to get used to this or is that just sort of incorporated into training as in physically you may have to get used to this. Uh, I think the game starts out really slow. Okay. Uh, it gives you breaks in between okay. narrative scenes. And actually, for a lot of seasoned VR players, uh, their impression was that it was choppy, it was slow, uh -huh. uh, boring. And uh, we fully <laughs> embrace and understand that. Yeah. Because for a seasoned VR player, it will definitely seem low action until okay. later on. But our um, our intention was for people like you to slowly grow their VR legs and get accustomed to how how you move in this game. Gotcha. How you do okay. things. Yeah, and I I am very thankful that you did that because I'm gonna need it. <laughs> and, uh, that's why so yeah if you're a vr veteran sorry but the voice of sarge even needs it so you know just actually, relax people i actually think what we could probably try is um i mean you can try the training mm -hmm. uh in the game but we could probably get a private server in multiplayer and i could probably try to teach you the really? thing and take it slow okay. uh, once you get comfortable doing whatever we could introduce uh like one bot two bots three bots right. however many right. and 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 then introduce johnny so we have some fodder to you know <laughs> hey johnny stand over there there right there don't move right. what's going on nothing, nothing yeah i I, I think since we have private uh, matches, I think we can create a safe environment for okay. everyone to get acclimated. All right. We're going to need that. We're going to need that then. I think uh, you and me and Johnny then have a date to get in here. And, and if you want to bring other designers and devs in, 
feel free. Oh, they will love it. Uh, I'm sure they'd love to blow away Sarge. I'm sure they're <laughs> tired of hearing his voice. So, <laughs> it would be even more great if you actually said a line every time you died. <laughs> I will. And uh, I can't remember, but I do believe Sarge curses in the game at some point. Does he? Uh, well, he's, he says, well, shit. Yeah, that's, that's one line I remember. All right. Yep. Well, I'll be saying that a lot. <laughs> so, tell your fellow devs and designers that every time you shoot Edgerly, you're going to hear this. Well, shit. <laughs> Again. Yeah, I'll, I'll take even more liberties when that, you know, because it'll be me saying it. But yeah, um, That'll be awesome. I look forward to that. Yeah, I've got to actually I'm going to have to try and get Mano. And um, yeah, Caroline Bloom and uh, Alex uh, Wilton Regan and Luke Bloom. I'm going to ask them if they have VR setups because if they do, then we can get Ollie and Mano. And God, I can't remember every character's name, but um, we'll try and get them all in there because be awesome. I would love for that. I don't know if they have VR setups, so I'm going to ask and we'll see. Because I, if you guys want, we could all get together and try it, and then you can shoot us. That would be awesome. Yeah, for and you guys can be yourselves, your your characters and multiplayer too. I think that would be a lot of fun. I, I'm going to have to ask them, hey, what do you guys have as far as VR setups go? Because I know they want to play the game because we, we, you know, as actors, we put something of ourselves into it. And uh, the process of being on the, uh, on the level and working with Peter and working with each other and, and working with the other people there just as part of the crew. You know, you do give a little bit of yourself to the game, and I can't wait to get in it. But um, there's that extra facet of it being physically demanding, so I have to, I have to do it in tiny little bites. So right, yeah. Um, there is some amount of setup that could help. I think this is something that I'm actually trying to help Johnny with, like, okay. because he mentioned that there is some stuttering in his his uh, headset, and okay. that is definitely not something that we <laughs> did on purpose right okay. uh it it has more to do with how you set up like certain refresh rates and right. uh like super sampling all those things that you can turn knobs so um i'll i'll kind of give you like what are the things that you can try for the optimal experience with the machine that you have all right then we'll have to do that um i am going to wait I mean, I'm going to keep in contact with you starting today about this, but I think I wait until after Christmas Day to get into it because I've got stuff I just want to do with the family, and I don't want to take the chance of me having too immersive a session and then getting off and saying, Dad's not going to be able to drive you guys anywhere for a few hours. You know, so Dad gonna... has PTSD. <laughs> yeah, Dad is going to be jumping at shadows for a little while, and and he's a little dizzy. So yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to lay myself out. <laughs> I want to wait until the day after Christmas, so I say, okay, I'm jumping in. But I will dip my toe in it a little bit. But as far as you and me jumping in and bang, 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 I think I may wait a day or two for that. But I am. Oh yeah, sure. I'm excited because I I don't just want to get in there with you. I want to. I want to meet the other the other people that worked on it, you know, and if we do that through VR, fine, let's do it. You know, Sarge is up for That'd it. That'd be cool. All right. Well, in the meantime, um, I don't know about you, but I'm hungry uh, and I got to go eat. And uh, I got, I got ribs 
and chicken wings because it's a cheat day. So, yeah. nice. Yeah, I'm gonna. Now you're gonna making me that. hungry. I didn't think so. But. I know. Yeah. What's your What's your like? Do you? I don't know if you do cheat days, but I have to because I gotta stay fit. I'm old and I don't have the, I don't have the margin for error I did when I was younger, where my metabolism would just burn it all up. So I pick one day a week and I do whatever I want. You know. So I don't know. Do you have like your, like what's your what's your mom's dish that you eat? that makes you think of home? Like, what is it exactly? Um, there's this soup that she makes with kimchi. Oh, super that is really nice. nice. Okay. With a comforting bowl of rice. Okay. Oh, it's the best thing. Yeah. Soup to me. My wife was not into soup before I met her. And I have sold her on the idea of soup. I said, soup is the most amazing creation ever because you can put anything in it. You can make a soup out of just about anything. So, well, except for desserts, you know. There doesn't seem to be very many uh, dessert soups out there that I'm aware of. But as far as, uh, it's almost a weird idea to even think about it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but as far as, oh man, when it's like a cold day outside, there's nothing like a great soup with a certain kind of broth that just makes you want to get right on the couch and watch... I don't know, whatever your comfort food movie is. So MST3K. <laughs> MST3K? You're an MST3K fan. <laughs> well, wow. I recently converted. <laughs> okay, so how many of their episodes have you seen? God, I don't know. It's been a constant, almost constant marathon since uh, November. All right. Because we were really trying to get into it for Thanksgiving marathon. Turkey Day marathon, I mean. I love that on. show. That show came out when I was, let's see, and I was in my early 20s. So, and I loved it because the idea for that show came from when Joel Hodgson, who created it, was in college. And he said, there's your dorm, like in your dorm, you have that one community room where there's one TV. And a bunch of us would sit there and watch these old crappy movies and we would just constantly make fun of them. We thought, we should do a show where that's what we do. We get old crappy movies and we just sort of, you know, make up jokes as we're watching them. That's how it started. That's awesome. I, I can't go to movie theaters with my friends because I love talking over movies. And really? they just, of course, you know, that, that isn't acceptable in a theater. And that is why the show clicked with me. <laughs> right? Because you couldn't get these things out while you're in a theater. I used to be the worst talker in theaters. And then I finally realized when I went to enough movies by myself that I hated when other people talked because I'm trying to watch the, the damn movie. <laughs> and so, yeah, now I'm, 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 you know, I understand. I understand. But I also understand how much fun it is to incessantly mock a film if it's just not doing it for you, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I feel you. I feel you, but I can't reach you because it's a pandemic. So, all right. Well, then you go enjoy your MST3K. And I'm going to go have my ribs and my chicken wings. And all right, I issue the challenge. What are you going to, you know, go find yourself a food that that can match my wings and uh, and ribs. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, you talked about pho, so I'm having a hankering. Oh, uh, yeah. You probably, if you're in a densely populated area, there's got to be like a great place around the corner, I would think. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's the other thing I need to get into more is ramen, but I don't want to have so much sodium. 
I mean, because the really good ramen's got all that sodium in it. But man, is it good. That's what makes it good. <laughs> I know. The sodium. Yeah, the stuff that kills you. Oh, well. All right. Well, Alexa Kim, thank you for letting me into your world a little bit. I know there's multitudes more, but um, I'm going to learn more about Medal of Honor, that's for sure, and the hard work that you guys all put into it. So I can't wait. And thanks for, you know, I don't know, peeling back the curtain a little bit on what you do. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love peeling it back all the way. Just everything. <laughs> you know, everything that I can say without being sued by EA, I will. <laughs> well, we'll have to follow this up down the line then with more, like the next game you work on. This was really fun. Thank awesome. you.